morning. How are you all doing? Good. So I heard you guys got a quite an education last week in uh, political executions. So while I promise uh, today it will not be so graphic, uh, no, nobody's getting executed today uh, in horrific ways. So we will be good. So we are uh, in the ninth week of going through the book of Esther, where we're following along in a story of, of a girl, really, who was uh, thrust into some very difficult circumstances. And what we're doing throughout this series, which we're going to conclude next week, is going through the book. The staff and I uh, read the book several times, and we pulled out different uh, questions to ask about the book of Esther. And one thing that's really unique about the book of Esther in the Bible is that it's a very secular book. It doesn't mention God, there's no prayer, there's no religious rituals, there's no miracles, there's nothing like that. It's just a story of a girl trying to do the best she can as a, a person of faith. And in that way, uh, Esther's story is very similar to our story. And just to kind of bring you through where we've been so far, we've come up with eight different uh, dice or deity questions, doored moments as we've been talking about, dice or deity, doored. And the first one that we had was in chapter one, where uh, Xerxes, King Xerxes, he dumped Queen Vashti because uh, his boyish pride was hurt. And we had to ask the question, you know, was that Dicerdidi? Was that just fate? Was that just uh, Xerxes acting a certain way in his personality, or was God doing something bigger there? In chapter 2, uh, we saw that once Esther was called into the palace to participate in the kind of the ancient, sick and twisted kind of beauty pageant, right, that she found favor with Haggai, who was the eunuch. And through finding favor with Haggai, that she was uh, able to get special treatment and, and get special information that helped her be chosen. And we asked the question, was it dice or deity? Was it God get, making uh, uh, Esther have favor with Haggai, or was it just by chance? Also, uh, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, and, and her adoptive father when her parents were were killed, that he was a palace guard. And he overheard, uh, excuse me, he overheard some palace guards uh, talking about assassinating King Xerxes. And we asked the question, was, was it dice or deity? Was it just uh, uh, by chance that Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time? Or uh, was God doing something? Then we also ask the question, when Xerxes, King Xerxes, did not reward Mordecai, we uh, really struggled with that, saying, you know, is it, is it possible that our God, the God that we serve, actually withholds rewards sometimes because uh, He has a bigger plan in order for us? Then in chapter 3, the fifth dice or deity moment, uh, we saw Haman, who was the... Uh, uh, kind of the villain, or is the villain in the story. He's the guy who was impaled last week. If you know, just to give you an image there, uh, that that 
uh, he cast dice or lots. He actually rolled dice to see when he w- the best time would be for genocide of the Jews. And if you remember the date that came up, it was March 7th, which was nearly a year uh, later than the current time when he rolled the dice. Then, if you remember, we had a dice or deity moment where King Xerxes was uh, having a hard time sleeping. And uh, what he decided to do was have uh, scrolls read to him about the rule of his empire and essentially the government records. So it would be sort of like if we got transcripts of C-SPAN and somebody just read it to you, you know, you would just, you know, fall asleep, right? You know, how exciting, you know, politicians bloviating, you know, what's better than that? So he had those read, and then out of all the, you know, hundreds or thousands of scrolls and sections and things that could have been read, was it dice or deity that they happened to read the account of Mordecai saving his life, and then he rewards Mordecai? Is it dice or deity moment then when Haman uh, the enemy of the Jews uh, uh, was walking through right at that moment and uh, ended up having to reward Mordecai for saving the king's life when Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. And then the final one was, was it Dice or Didi? And this is what you looked at last week. Was it Dice or Didi that uh, Haman threw himself on Queen Esther right when Xerxes was walking in, which uh, ended up having him be executed. So, through all of these dice or deity moments, we've been asking the question, you know, is it dice or deity? And, And the answer to this question is extremely important for you and I as followers of Christ. Because when things happen in our lives that seem completely random, we have to say, you know what, is that a dice or deity moment in my life? Is this just random chance happening, or is God doing something larger, even if I don't understand it? You know, if I don't get a promotion at work, is it just bad luck, or is the sovereign God of the universe doing something here? When something bad happens, like to me, the... Um, uh, on Friday, my garage door, the, the wires snapped, and big crash and everything. Is it, you know, uh, was that a dice or deity moment? And those of us who are followers of Christ, you know, that, that we struggle with these kind of things. We, we have to answer these questions. And our New Testament verse to help us answer these questions is, as followers of Christ is found in Romans 8.28 where Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And this idea that we can know as, as followers of Christ, even when we can't see the end game, even when we see that we, you know, I don't know why I didn't get that promotion, or I don't know why I didn't get that date, or I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't get that winning lottery ticket, or I don't know why my garage door collapsed, that we can say, you know what? I know that all things work together for the good. And even if I, I can't see the end game right here, I can, I can trust 
that God is doing something in this moment in my life. And it's revolutionary for a follower of Christ who, who can get a handle on this. So we are, are going to be in chapter 8, which is uh, found in page 302 in your E3 Bibles, or you can follow along on your fridge fold on the screen, or if you have your iPad or iPhone or I whatever, uh, you, can, you can follow along on that as well. So, oh, just to let you know, if you tweet or post something on Facebook about it, I actually see it when you do it. I freaked somebody out the other day uh, on that. So, just to let you know. <laughs> so, be nice. And don't test it right now, because I don't want a bunch of little bubbles coming up. So, okay. But if you think I'm looking at you, that's probably why. Okay. On that same day, verse 1, on that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. So basically, in the ancient world, if you were a uh, political figure and you had a political uh, execution, all your stuff, all your money, all your possessions, everything would go to the royal crown. And and go into that treasury. But what Xerxes did, he actually gave it to gave it to Esther, and Esther made Mordecai put Mordecai in charge of it. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Then Esther went before the king. Now, remember, remember the last time Esther went before the king unannounced? She did so under the penalty of death. Now, scholars are, are split on if it, she was still under uh, his protection on this time, but I kind of think that she wasn't. I think this was a new instance where she's coming in front of the king that she was not uh, summoned once again, so she is once again risking her life. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet, with, uh, begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. Again, the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, showing that she was accepted. So she rose and stood before him. Esther said, now, and this is kind of like the golden scepter part, and then also, you know, Esther and King Xerxes don't have a, a normal relationship, like is, is what we think is like a, a husband and wife. Like, men, think about your wives speaking to you this way. If it pleases the king, if it pleases you, honey, and if I have found, fa- found favor with him, and if he thinks it's right... And if I am pleasing to him, and he's crazy, and if you've taken your medication this morning, right? You know, all, all of these things, you know, she's, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of tension here. Because my wife just says, hey, go take out the trash. I don't get any of the, ah, you found favor with me, and you think it's right, and if I'm pleasing to you, will you please take out the trash? No, I don't get any of that. Let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hagamatha, the Agite, who ordered the Jews throughout the king's provinces should be destroyed. 
For how could I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So on June 25th, five days ago, we celebrated this next moment. What did you do on this five days ago, right? On June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officials, officers, the governors and the nobles of all 127 provinces stretching from India all the way to Ethiopia, a huge empire. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the people of the empire, including the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent dispatches by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bread for the king's servants. Now, the next section is the actual decree that was written. And I know that, that people in the past and Christians kind of through um, history have had a problem with how Mordecai wrote this. But I, I believe that there's great depth behind it and there's great meaning. And, I, and hopefully I can pull that out. And, and again, I don't try to make things okay in the Old Testament, uh, but, but I try to be fair where, where uh, fairness is in order. So here's the decree. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nation or province who might attack them or their children and wives, and to take the property of their enemies. The day was chosen for this event throughout the provinces of King Xerxes. It was March 7th of the next year. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. Now, March 7th is the, was going to be the date of what? The genocide, that, that, that Haman. So, okay, that makes sense. But the language used in here gives us some clues of what is going on. Because at first, at first response, like, well, you know, that's not very godly, is it? To kill, slaughter, annihilate, then take people's stuff. But I believe Mordecai is trying to do something here. Back in Esther chapter 3, verse 13, where we get the original edict from Haman, we get the exact same language. Let me read it for you. Giving the orders that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. So basically what Mordecai is trying to do here, in, 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 
he's trying to navigate some very difficult political waters. Because if he takes a wrong step, everything can come unraveled. So what he does is he mirrors exactly the language that, that Haman uses. Kill, annihilate, destroy. And then on top of that, and this is important for next week, whoever attacks them and they defend themselves and, and ends up killing the people who are attacking, then they get all of their stuff. And you might think, well, if you're dead, you know, you don't really need all that much stuff. Well, in the ancient world, if you were dead, you know, there was no 401k, there was no pension and everything. That means your family was destitute. So basically, this is a major thing. This is a, this is a hard edict. And But what else we see that, that Mordecai puts in this edict that, that we have to infer from uh, just kind of uh, what was going on is that at the beginning of his edict, he says that the Jews have the right to assemble to defend themselves. And that's a trick of politicians when they're trying to um, uh, uh, not repress a people. What's the word I'm looking for? Oppress. Thank you. Oppress, oppress a people is one of the first rights that go away is the right to assemble. That's why in America, that's you know one of our constitutional rights is the right to assemble. And so we have here that Mordecai is saying, look, we have the right to assemble and we have the right to defend ourselves, and if anybody attacks us, that we are going to kill, annihilate, slaughter, and take their stuff, and this is all on the day that Haman appointed. So that's what's going on there. So in verse 13, a copy of the decree was issued as law in every providence and proclaimed to all people. So the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on that appointed day. So urged on by the command, king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses, bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Now, I want you to catch the result of this declaration, this edict, and then we're going to um, contrast it with Haman's edict. Then Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold, and outer cloak of fine linen and purple. The exact outfit that Haman wanted, right? Fashion envy happening. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere, in every province and city. Wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday, which Jews still celebrate today, Jewish people. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they had feared what the Jews might do to them. So, you know, there, there you have it. So, basically the picture is we've had a great reversal of fortunes, right, that that Haman wanted to wear the royal robe, that he wanted the crown, he wanted all this. Now Mordecai has all this stuff. That, that Haman wanted, you know, genocide of the Jews, but now Mordecai and Esther have had this edict out there that says, hey, we can protect, we have the right to assemble, we can protect ourselves. And 
On top of that, if you attack us and we kill, slaughter, annihilate you, we get all of your stuff. Do you remember when Haman's edict went out, what happened and what they did? Do you remember? I'll tell you. Because that's what I do. In chapter 3, after uh, the edict went out, the provinces in Susa fell into confusion, right? And then Haman and Xerxes got wasted. They got drunk. And it's interesting looking at what happens with this new edict and in the, in, in the contrast of people are rejoicing, people are celebrating. And, you know, you wonder, you know, why, why did everybody fall into confusion? Well, you could probably imagine all that, but why, why was it important? Why were we told that, that they, they turned to substance abuse? Well, I think a lot of times, you know, in substance abuse, when we're uh, abusing alcohol or, or, or drugs or things like that, a lot of times, you know, that is an indication that something's not right in our soul. We're trying to self-medicate in our soul. And we saw this in, in a 20th century genocide of the Jews with, with Hitler. And it was, it's historical fact that uh, many of the soldiers, the Nazi soldiers who had to march the march the Jews into the gas chambers and in these concentration camps, uh, they were raging alcoholics because their human psyche couldn't handle the evil that they were perpetrating on fellow human beings. So it's really interesting the contrast that we are sitting and seeing here. So we have a lot of things going on here, but there's been one prevailing theme that I want to really talk about today that has been going through the book of Esther. And that's how uh, people navigate authority. You know, we see that Mordecai and Esther here are given authority to, to counter the authority that Haman was given. And throughout the whole book of Esther, we see people with authority or responding to authority. And I think that all of this is really important for us as followers of Christ because, you know what, all of us simultaneously are in a place of authority and we're also simultaneously submitting to authority. In Esther, we, just to remind you of some of the kind of uh, ways that we've seen people navigate authority, in chapter 1, we saw that the advisors uh, were, were giving advice uh, to the king to make certain decisions, and they were given the authority to do that. If you remember Queen Vashti, she refused the authority of the king, right? That's one example of, of not um, submitting to authority. We saw Haman using his authority for his own personal gain and his own personal vendettas. We saw Mordecai, interesting enough, picking and choosing whose authority he would respect. He would not respect Haman's authority and caused a whole lot of trouble, right? But obviously, he respected um, Xerxes' authority. And then we have Esther, who, who really navigating very difficult situation, you know, with her husband, the king, being cray-cray, and then Haman, you know, being uh, anti-Semite, and uh, just trying to navigate uh, uh, 
you know, court project or uh, politics, and her really responding to authority with humility and 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 fear and trepidation and and navigating through some very difficult situations. And then finally, we have Xerxes, who, in my my opinion, was just not a very engaged uh, leader. That that you know, he was just swayed by really anyone. Who, who was speaking to him at that time. And because of that, because he didn't take his leadership responsibilities seriously, that a lot of very bad things have happened. And I believe that one universal kind of experience that we have all had is all of us have experienced being an authority at some time, and we have all been subject to being under authority. Like all of us, have had some sort of parental unit or, or guardian over our lives telling us, you know, no, you can't eat chocolatey ho-hos for breakfast, right? You have to go to bed at this time, you know, and different things like that. We have also, pretty much everybody has babysat at some time or, or you know, done some sort of, of thing where you're in charge of somebody. You know, if, if you're like, I've never been able to be in charge and be an authority figure ever in my life, go volunteer for E3 Kids. It's your chance. You know, be an authority, be in charge. Tell those kids what to do, right? Uh, so, I mean, all of us have had, like, different things. Some of us, uh, you know, we're all employees, but in most of us, you know, we also have people under us. So we have bosses. We have people that we're the boss of or we're, you know, we're their authority figure. Most of us or all of us have all been students. Many of us have been teachers, you know, Sunday school teachers or professors or, or something like that. So we all have experienced really good authority figures, right? Yes. And we've all experienced some that needs a little bit of work, right? And, and you know what? As followers of Christ, you know, how, how do we? You know, this is obviously a common theme in our lives. How, and so how do we, as followers of Christ, simultaneously be good authority figures, biblical authority figures that, that bring glory to God, and people who, who um, are subjected to authority? How do we bring glory to God? And these are the certain questions that, that we have because we've all seen when it's gone, it's gone bad. Like one of, the, one of the best examples that I was thinking about, I knew I was talking about this today, obviously. I didn't just wake up and think, hey, Esther chapter 8, dice or deity, I don't know. Let's just go with it. Uh, you, know, it, was, it was, you know, it was planned out. So I've been thinking about, about this. And one of the worst examples of, of authority that I could think of happened Many years ago, uh, probably like 25 years ago, when I lived in California, one thing that I always did uh, as a young man is I would, on New Year's Eve, I would go down into Pasadena and hang out on the, on the parade route, the Rose Parade, uh, with, you know, a million of my closest friends. 
And I just jam-packed, huge party, lots and lots going on. Uh, the streets are closed, so people are just walking around and, and doing things like, like that. And I remember in the morning, uh, you know, nobody's feeling very good. Even more people are coming in. Basically, what Pasadena would do, because they didn't have enough police officers to uh, control that size of a crowd, that they would bring in all sorts of different uh, organizations and, and people who were kind of authority figures. And one thing that they did this instance was bring in, I believe they called them junior rangers. Uh, now, I, I don't remember if that's exactly what they were called, but basically what these, these were... Um, High schoolers who wanted to be police officers. Like, I don't know any high schooler who wanted to be a police officer, but these are the kids. They found some. And, and is, do they have that program? Like, I was always running from the cops when I was in high school, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, what do they call that in Tallahassee? Explorer. See, ranger, explorer. Okay, so they had the, it was probably explorer. Let's just go with that. That sounds... That sounds better anyway. Uh, so this junior explorer was down there. And I mean, I was, I was maybe 20 or 21 or, or something. This kid was probably 15 years old. And I mean, this is a vivid in my mind. And I, I responded to it differently back then than I do now. But, but this poor kid, I don't know if he's OCD or what, but you know the... The, the lights that have the hand and the walkie guy? Yeah. Yeah, the, those, you've seen them, right? This kid, pitcher. Everybody's been drinking all night, not me, but, but, you know, everybody's like hungover and people are walking in, you know, people from Oklahoma and Wasissa are walking in. They've never been to California before. You know, they're walking around wide-eyed and, and all this kind of stuff. They're not paying attention. Those streets are closed. They're not paying attention to the. And he's trying to control everybody. He wants everyone to abide by the little lighty signs. And he's sitting there or standing in the middle of the street having a complete meltdown, red face. The sign says, stop, don't walk, stop, you guy. And I mean, just screaming incoherently. And I think that's a good example of, of you know, being overwhelmed and, and trying to exercise authority that you don't really understand, you know, what, why you are there and what you are meant to do. Subsequently, I think we've all seen people respond very well in authority and being under the authority of people. I know uh, in my previous church, uh, a, a woman who was uh, um, the church uh, she was the church kind of uh, administrator, and she had to work with some very difficult, very difficult uh, personalities, and she navigated it with grace and just uh, grace and, and, and determination. I remember speaking with her, and she just handled it so well. So, fortunately, wow, it is really coming down. All right. At least we'll find out if the roof leaks, right? Okay. 
focus with me. I'm almost done. All right? We all have acknowledged there's thunder going on, God's bowling or something like that. Is that what they say? Come on, you've heard that, right? Yeah, okay. It's not a California thing. So, all right, here we go. First, first Peter, okay? Peter talks about how we as followers of Christ, we as followers, I will prevail. <laughs> we as followers of Christ uh, are to uh, bring glory to God as authority figures and to uh, bring glory to God as people under authority. So, verse 2, Peter's talking to the, the authority figures. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd comes or appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. And what Peter is saying here, if you want to be a biblical authority figure, an authority figure that emulates Christ, then there's some certain attributes in your leadership and your authority that you need to exercise. And this is important for every single one of us because every single one of us are put in authority situations. Number one, be a willing leader. Don't do it grudgingly. Don't, you know, just like, oh, you know, just if I have to or be irritated with people that you're leading. But be willing to do it. It is a, it is a gift. Number two, don't be like Haman and be self-serving. Do not use your position for your own personal grudges or your own personal gains. Number three, um, see your authority as actually an opportunity to ser serve God. I have friends who, who own businesses that, that do this extremely well, that they, they look at their business as, as an extension of their mission, that that. You know, saying, you know what, when you're given more authority, you say, you know, praise God, I've been given more influence. My platform is bigger. Now I get to, with my life, be able to share the values and principles of my Lord and the grace of my Lord. As a biblical authority figure, do not uh, act like a king. Don't lord it over people. But like a servant. And Jesus was the greatest example of this. I mean, here we have the, you know, God incarnate here on earth washing the feet of his disciples, his students. And then lead by example. You know, nobody needs uh, do what I say, not what I do, leader, parent, teacher, anything like that. You know what? Model the behavior that you want emulated. And then finally, be eternally focused. When you're in authority, you know what? There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. There's going to be good weeks. There's going to be bad weeks. There's going to be good quarters. There's going to be bad quarters, right? I mean, go on and on and on. And you know what? Get out of the weeds. We've been called to a higher calling than that.
We've been called to an eternal purpose. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's like, store up your treasures in heaven. And that's not some pie in the sky kind, kind of thing. It's saying, you know what? Try to see the bigger picture. Okay, what about those of us or all of us when we're under authority? How, how do we uh, illuminate Christ when we're under authority. Well, Peter goes on in verse 5. He says, In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of your elders, and all of you serve each other in humility. For God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God because He cares about you. And here we have three quick things when we're under authority. And this is stuff that we can implement when we go to work tomorrow or go to summer school or, or do whatever we do when we're, we're, you know, get pulled over by a police officer who used to be a junior ranger explorer, you know, uh, you know that, that, hey, you know what? You know, we can, we can implement these things. Number one, like Esther, be humble. Approach authority with humility. How can you do that? There's only one way I know that you can do that because there's a lot of authority figures that are just jerks, right? There's only one way that I personally know how to do that, and that's the Romans 8, 28. Knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose and believe that, you know what, even though I may not see it, this authority figure is here because it was sifted through the permissive will of God. And I may not understand it. I may not understand the eternal significance of this. I don't know what God is doing to me in this, but I can approach the situation in humility because of my faith in a sovereign God. Number two, uh, seize themselves under the sovereign power of God. So really looking again, just saying, you know what? It doesn't matter who that, you know, the, the person in front of me with a certain DMA, DNA and, and certain kind of personal uh, personality makeup is in front of me, that, that ultimately I am under the power of God. And then finally, and I think this is really important, especially for you uh, uh, younger uh, uh, ladies and, and gentlemen, I know this was important and very difficult for me when I was younger, is trust God will elevate you in His timing. You know, I'm sure that Junior Explorer was so excited about the opportunity to be a police officer for the day, or and maybe he even forced him, his way into that situation, and it really probably ended up being one of the worst days of his life. He's probably still in counseling. <laughs> and really just saying, you know what? I am going to trust that God will elevate me in His timing. That doesn't mean that you don't go for opportunities. That doesn't mean that you don't, you know, try to take steps in, in, in growing your business or, or growing your career or, or things like that. 
But what it does mean is, is you know what, I'm not going to force the issue. I'm not going to compromise my faith or who I am in Christ in order to make something happen in my timing. And I've seen this again and again and again in careers, in marriages, uh, in all sorts of relationships, in, in organizations that, that, you know, bending the rules to force your agenda because you don't want to wait on God's timing ends in disaster. So those are, those are the, the things that, that all of us as followers of Christ that, that uh, you know, we've learned through this, the narrative of Esther and then really the teachings of, of Peter of, of what it looks like to be a, a person who emulates Christ as an authority figure, and, and what it means to, to be a person who, who is subject to authority around us, but still has a very powerful testimony. Will you guys pray with me?